Well, um, thank you again for coming and for being at church and uh, joining us today and, and bringing the church, the body of Christ, into this room. Um, we have been going through a series of each week we hear testimonies, whether it be from the mission field or whether it be from those who've gone through some of our classes. Um, we're going to continue to hear testimonies today, um, a testimony today from uh, one brother who has gone through um, Harvest 201, especially, especially special. Um, does that work? Especially special? It's doubly special because um, he has been serving uh, faithfully as a uh, shepherd to our college students, our, our house church ministry, and, and recently um, has been um, called to go up to Atlanta to serve um, in the marketplace there. Um, and as he does, we, we know that he'll continue to do the work of, of ministry. And so today is, is his last uh, Sunday with us, um, but he wanted to share the work that God did in his life through this class. And uh, so it was with a uh, Oh, I guess a little bit of a heavy heart, but with also much gladness that we welcome uh, Stefan Seho Hong to come and share with us. Let's welcome him. He comes. In case uh, anyone is wondering... Um the U-Haul that is parked in the uh, parking lot is mine. So, uh, yeah, I, I rented it. I didn't buy it. Okay. Um, before, uh, before we think, um, could you, uh, would you pray with me? Um, Lord, um, thank you for, for this day and, uh, thank you for, um, Lord, all the moments that have led up to this, and um, God, I pray that uh, Lord, the words uh, that I share, God, that they wouldn't be mine. And, um, Lord, from from this point going forward, Lord, that uh, it wouldn't be remembered as my words, um, that my name would not be attached to it, but Lord, uh, you would be lifted up, uh, Lord, in all the ways that I fail and, um, and I do make it about me, God, um, would you would you help me not to? And, uh, God, would you just be lifted high? In Jesus' name, I pray. <laughs> so, um, I took Harvest 201 uh, to start or to, to finish something that I had started um, in 2009. So, um, for not many not many of you know, but I was a Harvest 201 dropout, um, one of the first, and so. Um, the reason why I dropped out was because of work. Um, you know, the company I had been working for at the time, um, you know, went through some unfortunate circumstances. They had some layoffs. Um, and so fortunately, I, I still had a job. But unfortunately, um, that just left me with increased responsibilities and more things to do um, with less resources. So um, the commitment of another night per week. Um, I live in East Orlando. My, my work was in Lake Mary. Um, it was, it, it was, it was burdensome. Um, you know, I had to drive basically this triangle of, of Orlando back and forth up North, you know, out West all the way back. And so, um, you know, I had to prioritize what was important. Uh, naturally 201 not being something that was required. Uh, it was an easy choice in my decision. So, um, yeah. And, and also it was, it, it was a relief because, uh, you know, Considering all the things that were going on at work, you know, 
then on top of that, there was 201 homework, and then there was all these memory verses, and uh, it just wasn't a, a pleasant experience for me. Uh, it was it was it was definitely not a blessing. Um, it was actually more of a more of a burden um, at that point in my life. So, um, unfortunately, uh, it was during that time uh, that I felt that, or in hindsight, I realized that work started to become a, a very very serious uh, serious idol uh, in my life, and so. Uh, as it became an idol, uh, a bigger and bigger idol in my life, the heavier and heavier uh, that burden became. And um, earlier this year, I went to Passion 2011 uh, with a lot of uh, college students here and uh, came back really fired up um, from hearing great sermons um, and, and just great times of praise. Um, and in one of the breakout sessions, uh, John Piper, um, as he so often does, uh, plainly put it, um, you know, just plainly spoke about how important scripture was, not just learning about scripture or reading scripture, but scripture memorization. Um, and, you know, his quote was um, something to, to the effect of, you know, how ridiculous would it be uh, if a church member was on his or her deathbed and I'm beside them in their last moments, frantically turning through pages to find words of comfort before they die. Now, I knew that I was lacking in this area, and I prayed that God would make me hungrier for it. And so naturally, the, the announcement of the next 201 class was, uh, was music to my ear, so to speak. Um, I went through the first few weeks without missing any classes, without missing any homeworks, and uh, really enjoying the teaching. Uh, but then uh, life took a very interesting turn um, when I was ex- unexpectedly laid off from a job. So... Knowing that God, uh, you know, has a good, well, luckily I didn't freak out, um, but knowing that God has a good, pleasing, and perfect plan, you know, I assumed that this was going to be an answered prayer. Um, You know, Jane and I are praying about this. She lives in New York. I live down here in the happiest place on earth. And, you know, what's going to happen? So, you know, I thought that it would just be, you know, okay, I'm going to go find a job in New York, and that's going to be it, you know, happily ever after, right? So, um... (laughs) But um, it was not that easy. Um, it, it usually it usually never is. Um, and more, what, what what was even more expected than than these current circumstances? What what was what God was going to show me over the next couple of months? So as I started to read scripture, um, God started to open my eyes uh, to how how deep and how rich uh, his his word really was. And uh, familiar passages and stories that, that, that I'd heard from childhood um, started to become a lot more complex, um, you know, a lot more applicable um, to my daily life. And, um, you know, we discussed in class how all of the Old Testament uh, points towards the coming of Christ and all of the New Testament points back to what Christ has done. And so then these stories of Adam, of Moses, of, of, of David, um, of Jacob, became a lot more than just simple lessons and, and, and stories of provision that God had done for these people, but they actually started to point towards what Christ was. Um, you know, there was an imperfect king in David. Uh, there was an imperfect man in Adam, but the perfect man and the perfect king uh, would come later on in Jesus Christ. Now, with that realization, how did that help my current predicament of unemployment? Um, you know, as I stated before, uh, work was becoming uh, a, a serious idol, idol in my life, and I was, I was yoked to it, and uh, it was driving me into the ground. 
but uh, thankfully, uh, I needed to be stripped of that to, to, to see that and to really understand um, how, how dire the situation was. And um, as I look back now, I saw the, you know, I see the bitterness and I see the pride that I was drowning in uh, while I was at work. And the more I thought about the next position, the more I thought about what I was deserved uh, when I was working, um, for the hours that I was working and things like that, um, the more my heart was becoming like that of Lucifer uh, before he was cast out of heaven, the more I felt like I deserved this or I should have this particular title. Um, that's essentially what uh, Satan did before his fall. So in response, knowing that this was an idol in my life, uh, you know, I tried to minimize the significance of work. Uh, you know, I would tell myself that, well, it's not that important. It's just a job. Uh, well, you know, this is how I make a living. My life is not work. Work is just part of life. And I would constantly say these things over and over and over. Um, but the problem was is that there was still this emptiness and there was still this void in my life. Um, even though I had come to this particular realization. And, um, yeah, but if you think about it, if, if you've recognized the problem and you've addressed it and you've prayed to God and you've said, God, relieve me of this, wouldn't there be some sort of freedom? Wouldn't there be some sort of uh, relief that you would feel after that? Um, unfortunately, there wasn't. Well, actually, in hindsight, fortunately, um, there wasn't because God still had more to tell me. Uh, the answer... Um, to this question came in story in the story that we've uh, all heard before and um, actually very recently went and discussed during the, uh, the Bible study sessions is the story of creation. And before the world began, God worked six days out of seven. Before sin entered the world, uh, God created man to work it and take care of it meaning the garden. So then is it possible that my work is also to be something uh, that is redeemed when Jesus returns? You know, a person's desire for a relationship or, or food or appreciation for music or art are all nice things. They're, they're not intrinsically bad, but ultimately broken because of sin. Um, and I believe that God was telling me that I was created to work and appreciate work in the same way that I would appreciate any of the above. God did, God did not create work to be a curse, um, but it's supposed to be a blessing, and he wants me to worship him through working. He wants me to make it the way that it's intended to be every day that I'm at the office. You know, I had tithed and I had given to the poor um, while I was working before, um, but God wanted more than that. And uh, once again, First uh, Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice. Uh, that, that rang true uh, again in my life. So the second part of my emptiness was, again, the, the, the manifestation of my pride. And uh, my initial response, as I said, uh, you know, it's just work. It's not that big of a deal. Um, was essentially myself putting myself above work and feeling that it was something that was beneath me. And um, I, I can't describe it any better than, uh, than C.S. Lewis did uh, in Mere Christianity. Um, he speaks really complicated, so just I'll try to read it slow. 
how to follow along. I had to read it at least five times to really get it. Um, Lewis says, It is a terrible thing that the worst of all vices, pride, can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious lives. But you can see why. The other and less bad vices come from the working on us through our animal nature. But this does not come through our animal, animal nature at all. It comes direct from hell. It is purely spiritual. Consequently, it is far more subtle and deadly. A man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think they are beyond his dignity. That is pride. The devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you become chaste, brave, and self-controlled, provided all the time he's setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. Just as he would be quite content to see your bruises and scabs cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. What I thought was my sin of idolatry was much deeper than that. It was my misunderstanding of God's purpose and making it into my self-righteousness. In the end, I learned that God wants me to submit, obey, and be faithful in all the small things that he's entrusted me with. That starts by putting him first. Um, every day, every meal, every conversation, every problem, everything. My life should be less of me and, and a lot more of him and all of him. Of course, the perfect example of this was Christ. He also came on earth to work, and he did it without any pride. It was work that truly was beneath him, but work that no one else could do. And by doing so, he broke the chains of sin, including this pride. 201 kept me planted in scripture um, and helped me to continue looking for answers uh, through a very difficult period of life. Um, and it was my bread of life. The Gospel of John um, begins with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The Word, friends. Uh, fall in love with the Word, and you'll fall in love with Jesus. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Seho. Um, very, um, yeah, sweet testimony and reminders of the importance of, of God's word. Um, well, I read a, a story this week. I don't know if you guys, um, you guys remember the story, the ugly duckling. I, I, when I think about like these fairy tales and stuff. Um, I, I know most of the characters, and I know usually the moral of the story, but sometimes, like, the actual story, like, what happens along the way kind of um, is, is confusing to me. So I went back, and I read the story of the Ugly Duckling. And uh, for those of you who don't know, or maybe you come from another, uh, you came from Korea or something like that, um, the story of the Ugly Duckling basically is about this mother, mother duck, and she has, like, a bunch of eggs, and um, seven of them, I think, and then they all hatch except for this one egg. It's taking a long time to hatch. And instead of being this, like, beautiful yellow 
uh, uh, duckling turns out to be like this gray and, and, and much bigger than all the other ones. And so the other like sibling ducks look at this one and they're like, oh, man, this guy's like really weird. And, and, and the kind of the, the pinnacle of, of the shame is that the mother duck looks at this duck and says, there he is, my ugly duckling. And so he grows up getting teased, and none of them want to play games with him or anything like that. They just kind of make fun of him, and so he has enough of it, and, and he says, I'm leaving. And he, he leaves, and he runs away, and he goes to all these different places, and other animals and, 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 and birds make fun of him. And he finally ends up at this other uh, old lady's house, and he thinks he's finally going to get love, but she thinks he's like uh, a goose or something, and she wants to cook it and, and make eggs and stuff. So he gets afraid, and he runs away. And, and so finally, he's at the end of, end of the line, and he, he goes to a, into a bunch of reeds. You guys remember this part of the story? He goes to a bunch of reeds, and he's like, well, at least I'll, I'll eat here, and I'll be okay, and um, it's better that I uh, just you know, hang out here all by myself. And one day he's hanging out there, and he sees like this beautiful flock of, of swans flying over him. And he's like, wow, if I could only be as beautiful as them one day. This is like a foreshadowing, right? So if only I could be as beautiful as them one day. And then he just goes, and wintertime comes, and it gets really cold and all this stuff. And then he gets, finally he gets back in the, in the reeds. And uh, it, kind of the, the climax, the ending of this story is like um, he, he sees a bunch of like beautiful uh, swans kind of swimming around in the pond, and he's still in the reeds. And, and he's finally sick and tired, and he says, I would much rather... I would much rather get out there and get killed by these beautiful birds. You see, it's sad. I don't know how this is a kid's story, but it says, I'd much rather be killed by these beautiful birds than to sit here and die all by myself. And so he kind of scoots his way over to where these birds are, and he hangs his head down to die. And for the first time, he looks in the reflection, at his reflection, and he realizes that he's nothing like what he used to look like. And these other swans come, and they welcome him into the group. And, and, and at the end of the story, this one boy walking in the, in the field nearby looks at, at points to the ugly duckling and says, that's the most beautiful bird I've ever seen in my life. And the story is like this powerful story about transformation and how like ugly ducklings can become beautiful swans. And, and I ask myself, is this, is this really possible? That this kind of a transformation can take place. I'm not talking about like this, this, this cheap, um, superficial transformation. Like, you, you remember the show The Swan? This was one of the worst shows ever in the history of the world. I remember watching it and just being so disgusted by it. Basically, they get these ladies who think they're ugly ducklings, and they interview them before, and they're like, you know what? I'm so ugly. I'm so broken. People always make fun of me. I've got to get uh, this area, of this part of my leg is messed up. I need to get this fixed. And, and they bring in all these people, right? They bring in, like, dieticians. They bring in fitness experts. They bring in uh, cosmetic surgeons. They bring in dentists, and they jack up their, take out their jacked-up teeth, and they give them all these things. And, and they're never supposed to look at them themselves in the mirror until the very end and the very end they come and they roll out this mirror and they're like oh my gosh and they're like so amazed that that's that's me and i remember watching the, the show and i felt so like almost disgusted inside that this is what people think real beauty is that all of their lives they were grown up thinking that they were not beautiful because something was wrong with how they looked on the outside and then all of a sudden, bam, they wave a finger and all these people come and, and they're, they're usually like really weird people who have this crazy fashion sense and, and they, they fix all these things and draw lines on their computerized faces and stuff and then out comes this like swan apparently. And I remember thinking to myself, this show is, is like I would cringe if, if anybody that I cared about watched this show. 
So I'm not talking about that kind of change, but is it really possible that God can bring about, or that anything can bring about for that matter, this kind of a transformation that turns something that ugly as an ugly duckling into a beautiful swan that people would look at and say, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. My proposal this morning is that through God's word, I want to show that it is possible and that it is our story, that every one of our stories is a true life story of the ugly duckling because I think, I don't think that Hans Christian Andersen really meant it, but I believe many, many years ago, there was a story that was true and that really happened, I think is a clearer picture of the ugly duckling than anything that we could ever see in this life. Um, Genesis chapter 29, uh, we're going to look at, again, kind of rehashing parts of the story from last week of, of Jacob and, and his two wives, but we're going to see it through the lenses of Leah, the one with weak eyes, and then we're going to kind of uh, push forward a little bit with it. So we're going to just read uh, Genesis 29, verses 31 through 35, and see how this kind of transformation is really possible. The Genesis 29, uh, starting verse 31, this is God's word. This really happened uh, some millennia ago. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. She said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now, at last, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I'll praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. This is God's word. We'll stop here. What, what's going on here? I think for any of us who feel like or have ever felt like you're an ugly duckling, you ever feel like you're unlovable, I pray that gospel hope would be given to us today because three things that I want us to see that Leah began to understand that started a process of transformation that I think we need to understand also. This is the first thing is that God's, God sees us when we feel unlovable. Okay, God sees us when we feel unlovable. Okay, this is simple. What does that mean? Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. Okay, so I get it. Um, he, she's not loved. The Lord sees that. But what does that mean? What did it mean when Leah, it says Leah was not loved? Remember from last week that Leah was the older daughter of Laban. He had a younger daughter named Rachel also. Rachel was beautiful, lovely in form. Leah had weak eyes. Her name was, a, was Cow. Right? Every time she was called, she was reminded of what her father really thought about her, that you're a, Leah, you're a cow. At worst, you're a farm animal. At next, next level, you're, a, you're just a mere commodity to me. But when I think of you, I think you're a cow. That's who you are. And we know how deeply these words can cut into our soul. And so she's growing up with a sense of ugliness. If Leah could sing a song those days, I think she would sing something like this. I'm not going to sing it. I'll say the words, I have a father. He calls me his cow. He'll never love me no matter what I do. Maybe some of you feel like that's your song and that's your story. That you feel like you're unloved, unlovable, unlovely. Right? This is what Leah felt. She's this kind of a person. It wouldn't be so bad if she didn't have a sister that she was always compared to. Her sister was beautiful. 
it's one thing to be compared. I, I'm the younger brother. I was always compared to my older brother. Why can't you be more like him? That's one thing. But to be compared to your younger sibling, holy cow, my brother would never have that. To be compared to your younger sister, she's beautiful. Anytime Leah would, you know, hey, people are hanging out, and here's Leah, and yeah, she meets someone new, and they're like, hey, uh, uh, I'm Leah. Oh, Leah, hi, good to meet you. And then inevitably someone will run up and say, hey, 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 do you know who she is? This is uh, Rachel's sister. Like, no way. They look up and down Leah. Like, you don't look like Rachel at all. You guys don't look like your sisters. And she knew exactly what that meant. She's living with this sense of, okay, I understand. I understand. My dad's told me all the time, and now you guys are telling me, that's cool, I understand. She grows up feeling like this is who I am. Maybe some of you feel like that. You feel like that still, perhaps. That I'm so unlovable and people tell me all that. I don't need to hear it anymore. Okay, I understand. My younger brother's better. My younger sister's better. My older sister, my older, whoever it is. My cousin, they're better than me. That's cool. I understand. I get it. So Leah grows up feeling unloved. No matter what she does, she'll always be compared to living under the shadow of the most beautiful girl in the world. And it's her sister, her little sister. And, and so you know, what little sisters do is they adore their older sisters, especially when they're young. In, in, uh, in Korean culture, when you're a younger sister and you've got an older sister, you call her Anni. That means older sister. So you imagine Rachel and Leah, they're playing, and little Rachel's like, oh, uh, older sister, older sister, hey, um, I think this boy likes me. What, how am I supposed to, I don't know what to do. How, what, what am I supposed to dress? How am I supposed to act? What am I supposed to say? And Leah's just like, I have no idea what that feels like. I have no idea. And so here, every mother of every son in Haran wants their sons to be married to, to Rachel. And they talk about Rachel and they, oh, all these great things about Rachel. But no one ever wants to go out on a date with Leah. Nobody ever sets their kids up with Leah. And the problem is, the problem is, all these women, all these mothers of, of sons, their conversation always ends with, but Leah's got to get married first. So it's hopeless. There's no hope. They'll never get with Rachel because nobody ever wanted to be with Leah. Now, yesterday, one of our uh, brothers, Danny Chen, amazing, great, great, great stuff. He um, called a, uh, about 15 of his buddies, and um, we were involved in this plot uh, and he proposed to his uh, fiance now, Brooke, and it was a, a helicopter ride, and we were all holding up signs, Brooke, I love you, and flipped it over, and will you marry me? And saw pictures of Danny with a big, huge smile in the helicopter and big ring, and he was giving us thumbs up. Yeah, she said yes, and so excited, and, and everyone was plotting. How, how, do, how, do I, how do I win the affection of Rachel? But nobody did that for Leah. Nobody thought and stayed up late at night. Nobody got nervous. No one's palms got sweaty, arms or <laughs> because of Leah. <laughs> oh, I did that for Leah. She was just the, uh, in, just the unloved girl. And so they grow up, and the only way, the only way that Leah can get married off is if they pretend like she's Rachel. Remember this from last week? Where Jacob gets, gets kind of hammered, gets drunk, and dark room, veil over her face, Hey, bring in Leah instead of Rachel. He thinks he's marrying Rachel. Brings in Leah. 
I, can, I mean, I, so many times in my mind's eye, I've pictured this as like if this was a movie scene or if this was a TV scene or if this was like if I was actually there. Guy, imagine like what this scene looks like when he wakes up from his hangover and he looks over at Leah. I mean, the only thing missing in this scene, if this were to happen, is like Ashton Kutcher running out with these video crews, right? And he's laughing and he's got his hat on and he's clapping and he's like, st- and then Jacob comes up and he's like, my name is Jacob and I got straight pumped. But what about Leah? Jacob wakes up in the morning and he flips out and he starts screaming. I can't, if you were Leah, what would you be feeling in that time? I, you know, I, I've married this man and, and maybe when he wakes up, he'll look at me and say it's a mistake, but he'll still love me. But he just goes ballistic. And then he goes to her dad and he's like, what in the world? I, I married Rachel and you gave me the cow. How dare you do that? And Laban says nothing to defend her. How wet her pillow must have been with the tears that flowed from the brokenness of her heart. The unloved, unlovable, unlovely person that she is. Maybe some of us, that's like our story. We feel like we cry ourselves to sleep because we feel like we'll never be loved. And this is Leah. She's the ugly duckling. And it, it, it kind of it exacerbates, it just kind of spells it out in commentary. In verse 30, Ra- Jacob lay with Rachel also. And he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. If you're married to the same man that your sister's married to, there's going to be problems. But not only are you just married to the same man as your sister, but she's drop-dead gorgeous, and you're not. And he loved her more than Leah. But look what it says in verse 31. It says it goes even stronger. And the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. It's not like I love you five and I love you ten. It says she was not loved. She's off the scales. This is zero. But it's worse than that because in the original language, it says Jacob hated Leah. Like he despised her. He didn't want to come home to her. He didn't want to touch her. He didn't want to look at her. He didn't want to, he didn't want to have anything to do with her. And this is what she's feeling. She looks over at her husband thinking that one day maybe there'll be a, a softness in his eyes, but it, it's not there. And she feels completely unloved. See, in, in Genesis 29.10, we looked at this last week. It says, Jacob saw Rachel, right? And it caused him to move this huge stone off the mouth of the well. But not once in this text does it say that Jacob saw Leah. You see, because Leah is the invisible woman. You know, when no one loves you, dad doesn't love you, man doesn't love you, sister doesn't love you, nobody loves you, it can be the most lonely feeling in the world, can't it? You feel like a zero, you feel like you're invisible, feel like no one ever recognized you, wonder what everyone's doing on Friday night, wonder what everyone's doing on Saturday night, how come no one calls me, look at pictures on Facebook and they've done that, where was I? It's like all my buddies are there, but why not me? The invisible woman. And when nobody saw her, it says in verse 31, the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. When I think about this idea of God seeing us, I, I always think back to the Dominican Republic. We've gone about five, six times. Some great memories there. We're about to send the team off July 11th to go to the DR again. I remember this one year we were there and we were leading um, 
vacation Bible school. That's what they called it, but it was really vacation Bible madness. Like a thousand kids in this gym, and all of them come from different barrios, right? Different neighborhoods, and they've got like they're fighting for these territorial rights. We come from this area, we come from this area, and they're like these little thugged out eight year olds, and they've got their own version of the Bloods and the Crips, and it's crazy. So they get together. You bring like people, kids from fifteen different neighborhoods together, and the first thing they do is they start saying, "Where are you from? Where are you from?" And they start fighting. It's crazy. So we're like teaching, and Jesus says to forgive and love your neighbors. And <laughs> stuff going on. This is what they're, and we're like. First of all, we use uh, civility, try and be nice to them. Hey, you know, uh, siéntate or whatever it is, la niño, el niño, whatever it is, sit. And they don't understand that. They don't like that. They're, they're like, you know, staring at us like we're the enemy. And so we say, okay, that, that doesn't work. And so we tried to yell at them, tried to push them, tried to plant, like literally plant their seeds. And nothing's working. We're preaching to them, yelling at them, singing songs, doing motion songs, acting foolish. All these things, and none of this working. They're going crazy. The only thing that worked, though, we started to, to sing this song. And it's a song, um, it's a Spanish song. It's called La Niña de Tus Ojos. And it's a Spanish idiom that means the apple of my eye. And as soon as we started singing this song, as soon as people started hearing it, it's like this wave swept over that gymnasium. And kids who were like punching each other, they're holding hands. I'm just kidding. But they sat down. Oh, I love you. They, they sit down and, and they, they're closing their eyes and they're singing this song. And some of them are, are swaying back and forth. As they sing this song, what in the world is this song about? It's like four simple lines. And all it says is, is you saw me when no one else saw me. You love me when no one else loved me. You gave me a name. I'm your child. I'm the apple of your eye. That's it. And these kids who have just running around craving attention, 40%, 60% of these kids growing up in the Dominican Republic who have no idea who their, who their parents are, who their real dad is, just longing for somebody to notice them. And so they're acting out by beating up these kids from the other, other neighborhoods and, and running around. And, but you saw me when no one else saw me. And all of a sudden, their, their hearts are still. Because this is their story. Because this is our story, that when we feel unlovable, when we feel so ugly and unlovely, right, he sees us. Okay, that's the first thing that we have to understand is that God sees us when we feel like we're blanks, when we feel like we're invisible, when we feel like we're zero, when we feel like we're unlovely, unlovable, um, he sees us. But the second thing that, it, that we see is that not only does God see us, but God pursues us when we're unlovable. Verse 31 again, when, he, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. What does that mean? When we talk about the Lord seeing, we have to understand something. Here's a little bit of, 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 of uh, ancient Hebrew um, word study. Whenever it says the Lord sees someone in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 2, for example, whenever the Lord sees somebody, it doesn't just mean, okay, hey, you know, there's, there's Carl, cool, cool that you're here. Hey, there's James and, and there's Seho and Guni and Suman is here. That's cool. I see you. It's not what it's saying. When the Lord sees somebody, it means that he cannot leave them in their condition. It means he's moving. He's working. He's active. He's coming to rescue them from where they are. When God sees you in the situation that you are, he's not just like, okay, you're struggling. That's cool. I see you. I, I'm aware of that. He says, I'm coming. I'm coming. And so God's coming. He's pursuing 
Leah in this situation where she's so unlovable. He says, I see you, Leah. I'm coming. And what does he do? He does the one thing. He, he does the one thing that in their world, the one thing that she knows in her heart of hearts must be a sign that he loves me. Because all of my life, I'm second class, second citizen, second rate, second place. Here I am living in the shadow of Rachel. But one thing, one thing that she doesn't have is she can't have children. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. So that finally she can see. Finally, she can see that God is with her, that God cares for her, that he loves her, that he's holding on to her, that he's not going to let her go. He says, Leah, I see you and I'm coming to help you. And so he opens her womb. Here's the problem, though. Leah, like many of us, instead of recognizing what God is doing and seeing that and clinging closer to God, she begins clinging closer to her husband, to Jacob, thinking that I can get loved by him now because I'm going to give him some children. And I think so many times we in this, this culture of, of whatever it is, maybe we've been brainwashed by these standards of, of true beauty or we've thought what it is to be acceptable. We've, we, we've thought that if, you've got a, if you're in a relationship with somebody, then you've, you, you've reached the holy grail. Sometimes we make that to be the, 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 the ultimate end-all, be-all in, in life, and we put all of our hope in that place. Sometimes we say, I can't read the Bible. It's so old. It's too, it's too outdated. 4,000 years ago, and yet we still do this stuff. We still do this stuff. We still put our hope in relationships to find our satisfaction. We still put our hope in being loved by that one person for our hope of satisfaction. That if I'm unlovable, I just need to find one person who loves me and then I'll be, it'll be worth it. This is what Leah's doing. Even though God is the one who's blessing her saying, Leah, look, look, see me. She sees what God has done and then she begins to cling to Jacob. Look at what it says. Verse 32, Leah became pregnant. And gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. So God gives her a son, Reuben. And this woman who nobody loves. Receives this gift from God who loves her so much. And she turns this gift and she says, surely my husband is going to love me. How many times have we put our hope in a relationship? How many times we've we been so desperate for love that we would give ourselves to anybody, even if they don't love us? Even if all they're doing is using us. We think, well, well maybe they can change. All right, so desperate for love that we jump into a relationship with somebody that we know is not good for us, that we know God doesn't want us to be with, but we get with them because we just so deeply want to be loved. And then we wake up and we realize that we're not loved. And so what does she do? She says, I'm, I'm married to the guy that I thought would love me. He doesn't love me. Even after all of these years, I'm going to give him some kids. I'll go to bed with him and then he'll love me. Isn't that what sometimes we think? I don't want to do this, but it might be the only way I get love. So I'll give you something. Here, I'll give you this. I'll give you that. Will you love me now? I, I, I remember talking with, with, a couple, with a couple people saying, you know what? He didn't love me. I thought at least if, if, I, had, if I slept with him, then he would love me. But as soon as I got pregnant, he bailed. That's it. I thought at least he'd man up and he'd, he'd at least take care of the kid, but he doesn't do anything. How foolish we are, like Leah, to give ourselves away to somebody that we think will love us in that way. And I so desperately want love that I would give myself up in order that I might be loved. Surely my husband will love me now. 
He doesn't. Second kid comes. You can see this again, verse 33. When she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Realize after the first one, she's still not loved. She has another one, names him Simeon. Still not loved. Like sometimes we, we're like, I don't know why I keep going back to that relationship. I don't know why I keep going back to that, that girl. I don't know why I keep going back to that guy. But we do. Because we're just like Leah. Wanting to be loved. Wanting to be loved. Maybe some of us are in, maybe we're in a loveless marriage. Like, hey, you know what? I thought if I, if I did this or if I did that, things would be okay. Having children is not going to spice up your marriage. It's not. If the love's not there before you have kids, and it's not going to be there when you get kids. It's going to make it worse. He or she may love the kid, but they're not going to love you anymore just because you have kids. Now, that's never the way it's been. When God created, it's not because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were like, you know what, we need something to spice this life up. Let's have produce. Like Because there was so much love, then they produced. And they wanted to share that love with other people. Second child, no love. Third child, again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. After the third kid, here's what she's realizing. First time, she said, surely my husband will love me now. He doesn't. Second one, she says, the Lord saw that I'm not loved, has another one. Third one, now finally, she's like, you know what? If you're not going to love me, if, you can't, if you're not going to love me, just at least don't leave me. Become attached. Just don't leave me. Don't leave me. I don't want to be alone. She went to that well one more time. Just don't leave me. Like that, I feel like I'm watching Teen Mom here. I've watched like parts of one show, and the same thing with The Swan. I, I got disgusted with it, and I turned it off. Like I, I had this kid so that he would stay with me, but he's a deadbeat, doesn't do anything. If you won't love me, at least don't leave me, please. Isn't that how we are sometimes? I feel so unloved. Just don't leave me. I'll do anything. Just don't leave me. Just stay with me. Don't leave me. But God is doing something with every child. He's loosening the grip of Leah on her husband. First time, surely my husband will love me. Second child, because the Lord heard that I was not loved. Third, just you're not going to love me. Just, just be attached to me. That's it. That's it. That's all I want. And he's doing something to loosen Leah's grip on this stranglehold of the idolatry of a relationship that she thinks if I have this, it will be okay. If I have this, then I'll feel like I'm someone again. He doesn't. The last thing that we see, the last thing that we see is that in our unlovable state, um, God satisfies us. Three kids have, have come and gone. Three kids have been born. Fourth child, verse 35. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, Then she stopped having children. See, in this fourth child, there's no mention of her husband. It's like finally she has decided that my husband is not going to be able to satisfy me, that a relationship on planet Earth is not going to be able to give me everything that I need. That little Girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife or whatever it is, that beautiful, ideal relationship is not ever going to satisfy me. This time I will praise the Lord. She realized it is not going to be God plus something else that will ever satisfy our hearts. And we've got to understand this. 
Right? We all say that, that it, it's Jesus alone. But when you, when you pull back the way that we live life, how much time we spend with God, how much we think about God in our waking moments, how much we dream about God, how much we talk about God with other people as opposed to some of the other things that we talk about. We go by that rubric, we go by that exam, which is the truest exam of our lives, that we realize that it's probably our equation is the Lord plus X plus Y plus Z plus A plus B plus C equals fulfillment and satisfaction. She went to all of these wells and realized that none of these things can do it. And so finally, she says, with every heartache, with every brokenness, with every heartbreak, God is pulling me closer and closer to him. So with this fourth child, finally, she says, this is God doing it. This time I will praise the Lord. And that's it. That's it. No other things, no other people, no other desire, no other love, no other thing that I put my hope into. It's just you. It's just you. And then she stops. A few of us were talking earlier this week, and uh, someone threw up this question. And they said, what is uh, the most significant? What, what is one of the uh, most important events in your life? What's the most significant event in your life? And either one or two people said, uh, my heart was broken. And I, I didn't write that, but um, I, I easily could have. Because isn't it true that when our hearts are broken, that in our disappointment, God is calling out to us? See, with every disappointment, God was pulling her closer and closer to him to realize the bankruptcy of these things that you're putting your hope into. Like, it's like this song, I set out on a narrow road many years ago thinking I could find true love along the broken road. I got lost a time or two, got myself up, wiped my brow, and kept moving on. Uh, it's just that, 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 that song that says, um, all, of these, all of these dead ends, all of these broken roads, all of these people, others who broke my heart, they're just northern stars leading me on my way into your loving arms. This much I know is true, that God blessed the broken road that led me straight to him, to you, to God. All of our heartache and all of our brokenness and all these failed relationships are God's way of pulling us to him to help us to see that these are pointing us upwards. He's not say, he doesn't say to Leah, you know what, you need to set your sights higher. You need to set your sights lower. He says you need to set your sights higher because you're settling for this, for this guy and he's never going to be able to do it. Lift up your eyes and finally she does and she's different and this child we see is different. If you read... On about what it says about Judah. Genesis 49, it says something very interesting about this one out of 12 children born to Jacob. It would later tell us that the promise to Judah is that the scepter would never depart from your family, from your line. What does that mean? It means that you will always have a king on your throne. That from your loins, your descendants, your ancestors would come, the one who would sit on the throne and be the savior of the world. You see, when Jesus Christ came, he came as a great ancestor, the descendant of Leah, the ugly one, the broken one, the rejected one, the unlovable one. And that's how Jesus came. He didn't come as the beautiful, he came, he came in a manger. And his life was, he went through, there was nothing in, a, in human appearance. It was prophesied about him in Isaiah 53, nothing that, that led people to be attracted to him. And on the cross, he was marred and disfigured beyond human recognition. There was nothing beautiful about him. And yet here's, 
I think here's the greatest grace is that when we feel we're unlovable, when we feel like we're unlovely, when we feel like we're so broken, we feel like people have made fun of us and called us names and have rejected us and have shrieked at us and howled at us, and when we feel like nobody sees us, the power of the gospel is that when you think you're Leah, God says you're Rachel to me. When you think you're Leah, God looks at you and he says, you're Rachel. You are beautiful. You are loved. You are my chosen one. You're the one that I will forever. Jacob was the broken bridegroom. But Jesus Christ comes and he's the perfect bridegroom who will always love you in your brokenness and in your ugliness. And by loving us, he transforms us so that we can become beautiful. And ours is a true story, the ugly duckling, that he changes us and he transforms us. And he looks over us and he delights in you and me. And he says, you're beautiful. Believe it. And let this change your life. Let's pray to God and and just ask him if we've put our hope in earthly things, if our sight has been earthbound, if we failed and maybe had a lot of broken relationships and we just feel like what my heart has been so torn up, I don't know why I keep going back to those places. I don't know why I keep going back to those relationships. I don't know why I keep going back to those dreams. I don't know why I keep drinking from the same broken well, going person to person to person to person, thinking I could find true love along the broken road, only to realize that these things leave us thirstier and thirstier. God says, look, you may feel like Leah, But to me, today, and forevermore, you are Rachel. You're beautiful, and I love you. I want you to be mine forever, till death do us part. And even then, even then, you will experience, only then you'll experience true intimacy and true beauty and true and lasting love when we're together face to face. Take a moment to pray, confess, declare, to believe, to stand on the truth of God's word. Let's pray for a minute or so together. We'll continue to uh, worship as we pray and and continue in our our service. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank you for grace for the broken, the grace for the unloved, grace for the unlovable. Thank you for grace for, yeah, for those of us in here who have ever or still or will continue to feel like no one ever notices us. 
will never be beautiful enough, will never be good enough. Help us, God, to lift our eyes upwards, to fasten our affections on you, woo us back to you, satisfy us, O God. May our souls delight in you and you alone. We thank you, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name.